0: We're gonna get going because there's a lot and you know, I never get finished Um, I was driving here and I was telling Cindy. I I had such an experience on the way here and um, I'm just always worried that I can't and I'm not gonna be able to I'm sure I just wish I could always get you to where I am sometimes when I've spent time here and we're about to hit the second half of Daniel, which I'm going to be honest with you, is stinking hard. And, um, and we're going to talk about that. But I don't want us to get so lost in the detail of how hard all the different symbolism is, that we forget why we're coming here to learn the book of Daniel. And it, the book of Daniel is a book of absolute hope. And when you see it that way, it does not instill fear. For what's coming in the future. What it does, it instills hope, because one day we will experience uh, the streets of heaven. And um, this is so good. Uh, my my friend Kathy was up here earlier. Uh, she was a little bit confused what chapter we're in. And she, we were laughing and I, and she said, well, I thought we were in chapter nine. I said, no, what you did is you wrote six and turned it upside down or something crazy like that we were laughing so just to clarify all right we're finishing up she's probably an overachiever so she's uh, been reading ahead she's confused but we are finishing up the very end of six and we're going into seven um and i have a few things planned for y'all today that i think will help you uh, put it all together but man is it good so let's pray lord thank you so much for today god i pray You would give me ability beyond my ability and that I would be able to teach in a way that gives enough meat to possibly interest them to even dive deeper not so that we can be so dogmatic um, or hold on so tightly to different prophecies but Lord, so that we can be aware, we can watch and, and be a part and, and watch prophecy lay out. But most of all, Lord, so that we remember, as the saints of Revelation say, and I believe it was on the mind of Daniel, uh, Lord, how long, how long is it going to be? How long till you come and judge the world and save the saints? How long? And the book of Daniel reminds us, listen, not forever. There is coming a day where all things will be made right. And we will be a huge population before the throne of God and we will worship him and the beast will be destroyed. Lord, we long for that day. Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would teach in this place and uh, I would actually learn from my own mouth and that it would enter deep into my heart. I love you in Jesus name. Amen. All right, here we go. So let's finish up chapter six and I'm going to start in verse 17. Okay. Daniel's been thrown in the lion's den. Verse 17. And a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet, with the signet of his lord's, that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. The king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him, and sleep fled from him. Then at break of day... And went in haste to the den of lions. As he came near to the den that Daniel was, he cried out in a tone of anguish. The king declared Dan- to Daniel, "O oh, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? Remember this scene. Okay, this has been a whole conspiracy. It's been a whole setup." Because Daniel has now been elevated into power in the Persian Empire. We know that he was one of three. And the reason the king put three people at the top, it says so that he would have no losses. Then he decided that he was going to place Daniel, or he he had decided, and somehow he let it out of the bag, that he was considering placing Daniel over the entire kingdom. Well, when that word got out, uh, the leaders We're not happy. And what they did is they hired the CIA and MI6 to uh, do surveillance on Daniel. We talked about that. They followed him. They watched him. They read his stuff. They interviewed people. They did everything they could to find dirt on Daniel so that they would have something to maneuver him with to hold over his head so that he would play. And they could find nothing. And so, because of that, they determined that they were going to get rid of Daniel. And I'm not talking about demote him. I'm talking about killing him. A man who you have said out of your mouth is innocent because you've looked for any dirt you can. And yet, because of your own power, you want him gone. And so, they conspire to get rid of Daniel. And how do they do that? Well, by watching him, they have profiled him well. They know what is the most important to him. Not only has his history said this, but his daily rhythm says this. And so they know that if they can bring a conflict between the law of the king and the law of God that they're going to get Daniel and so they have this uh, campaign for 30 days they convince Darius that he needs to put out an edict that according to the law of the Medes and the Persians cannot be changed that for 30 days because 30 days that's plenty of time for Daniel they know good and well that his rhythm is so strong they're going to get him quickly so for 30 days um, you may not pray or petition to any man or God other than Darius and so they convince him and we talked about over the last couple weeks probably how they did that they came in talking about little divisions within the empire all over and this need to unify the people to bring a diverse group of people together to unify them under one mission and one purpose and so they're preaching unity but over here they're performing conformity because conformity is it's when the powerful group of people get to determine and they enforce their way on the less powerful because it comes with a hammer. And so they're preaching unity, they're putting out conformity for 30 days, but the bottom line is what? They don't really care about either one. They're really not concerned about the empire because all of this we know by reading the chapter of Daniel that this is all smoke and mirrors. It's all it is. It is all smoke and mirrors laying a trap for one individual because if he remains, the boys club cannot go on and, can t- and have their power and their money. And so all of this has been laid out, uh, smoke and mirrors. It's almost like the matrix, okay? It's not real what is happening because what's real is they want the death of one man. That's it. And they go in and they convince the king to do so. And remember when he finally realizes what has happened, because he puts the edict out and he signs it and then they come back and make him restate it. Do you remember? They, so that he can double down. And then they tell him that his prized leader, Daniel it has been praying to his God and the king, King Darius is so upset And who is he mostly upset with himself for falling for this nonsense because he bought into this will all will everyone. And it also, um, you know, supported his pride and his arrogance. And now he knows that that has trapped his prize guy. But he has to hold true to his word. Or does he little question there? But he does. Because even in agony, he feels that he has to hold true to his word, because if he does not, all his future edicts will be questioned. And so, in agony, he goes ahead and he sacrifices Daniel, and he allows him to be thrown in the den of lions. On the other hand, Daniel is unwilling to sacrifice God's word, and so he sacrifices himself. Does that sound familiar? And he gets thrown into the den. And we see here... That a stone is rolled over that den and it is sealed with a signet ring. Now, obviously, a signet ring or a seal, any kind of seal you're talking about, that's not gonna keep anyone from rolling the stone away, but what it's gonna show is if it's been tampered with or not. Does that makes sense that no one came in trying to rescue Daniel. And so, from the evening of when he was thrown in to the morning, the seal was still intact. And so, it is showing that nothing had been. Um, tampered with. But I want you to see something really cool because I want you to see the connection. I'm always trying to show you the connections between the Old and New Testament. I want you to see the connections between different individuals in the Old Testament who are types and figures of the Lord Jesus Christ. Not fully, but we see aspects of Jesus within the story of the Old Testament through Abraham. Abraham sacrificing Isaac through David, through, very, through Daniel, we're going to see this. And this is one of those beautiful times that you see it. So look at Matthew 27, 66. Okay, do you see the heading of this section? What does your heading say? The guard at the tomb. Okay, so this is Jesus' tomb. This is the guard that was placed over to watch that tomb. Keep in mind, Jesus was placed in a tomb and what was rolled over? Okay, and it says in verse 66, this is the point I want you to hear. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. Okay, they did the same. There is a royal seal. If you have sealed it, no one will tamper with it. Because if you, if you mess with the king's seal, what will that mean for you? Death, okay. So I want you to see the beautiful connection between Daniel as, as a type um, and Jesus, this righteous man living counterculture with an infectious spirit tethered to the law. He was set up by his own, the wise men or leaders due to the fear of him messing up their system of power. The king, or powers to be, who should have been his enemies, are actually drawn to him. And out of their very own mouth, they declare him innocent. Yet he is still thrown in a pit, and a stone is placed and sealed over. Their fates were sealed. And where death was inevitable, life emerged Two different scenes. While the satraps or the leaders, I'm sure, partied all night, what did the king do? He grieved. He grieved. And did you hear that it says that he refused all distractions? This king could have had any distraction he wanted. And he refused. Like, all night long, he was in agony, right? Right? You get this idea that certain individuals are partying because they thought they won on this dreadful night. And others are stricken with grief about this man being in this tomb. Are you seeing the connections? Am I making it plain enough? He knew he had been played, meaning the king. But can I tell you, so were the leaders in Rome. Pilate. Right? The last thing they needed, listen, these Jewish leaders that were calling for Jesus's crucifixion, what did they know about the leaders in Jerusalem under Rome? The last thing they needed was another Jewish revolt. It was a fine line they had to walk. To keep power over this Jewish people, but to let them actually have their own autonomy within the power of the Roman Empire. But that was a that was a very hard tightrope to walk to walk because very often the Jewish people would rise up and do what and rebel. And then it was full on. And so they knew um, that they were putting him in a pickle. So when the king says he's innocent, but yet the powers to be are trapping him in the situations that sound familiar, we're seeing it. And like Mary Magdalene and the other Mary in Matthew 28, Darius went to the den or tomb. And it says the same phrase at the first light of dawn. Can't like can't wait to get there. Like the minute something could be done, to find out, to help, to be with the body, they were there. And it says that Darius cried out in anguish. Does that sound familiar? Because maybe, just maybe, there's a ray of hope. Verse 21, Then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouth, and they have not harmed me, because I was found blameless before him, and also before you, O king, I have done no harm. Then the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den. Do you hear that phrase? Okay. And no kind of harm was found on him because he had trusted in his God. Unlike Daniel, Jesus was not spared from death, but instead conquered it. And although he was blameless, he paid our debt, conquering its penalty. On that blessed morning, the only roar coming out of the tomb was the Lion of Judah. Just sit in that for a moment. That is so good. The beast's mouth were quiet. Daniel arose, and I'm going to tell you what, when that tomb was rolled away, and he came out of that grave, there was a great roar, but it was not from the beast, it was from the Lion of Judah, because at that moment, he had won. This act was the royal seal in his blood, making good on his promise. The blood of Jesus is the seal of our new covenant, that we are saved, our debt has been paid. What does this remind you of? Like, do you ever study God's word and then things come to you? Then came the morning that sealed the promise. You know that song? His very body began to breathe out of the silence the roaring lion declares the grave has no claim on me sing with me hallelujah praise the one who set me free Hallelujah! I can't hear you death has lost its grip on me you have broken every chain There's salvation in your name Jesus Christ my living hope I mean are you ever going to sing that song the same again after Daniel can you not picture it in the tomb then came the morning That sealed the promise. His buried body began to breathe. What was that like? I can picture it in my mind, laying there, and all of a sudden (gasps) comes the first breath, and you hear the cheers, and you hear the worship. And he comes forth out of that grave, breaking the seal of the king of the earth and creating a new seal in his blood because he is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And we're going to see this all through Daniel and we're going to see it some in uh, because I'm not going to teach you the whole thing in Revelation. And it is glorious. And if it doesn't make you want to shout when you read it, I don't know what's wrong with you. My old pastor used to say, if that does not fire you up, your wood is wet. Like, what is going on? It's exciting. And the king commanded, and those men who had maliciously accused Daniel were brought and cast into the den of lions. They, were, they, their children, and their wives. And before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces. Now Listen. I know this is hard for y'all to see or to hear, right? That's not how we necessarily operate. But the evil was completely annihilated. It's hard to hear. But those who sought to kill Daniel by throwing him to the lions actually died by their own design. That's the point. Okay. There's Proverbs all about that. You know that if you dig a pit um, for the righteous, be careful because you will fall in it. There's, I mean, there's all kinds of things. Proverbs 11:8, Proverbs 26:27, are some of those ideas. Be very caref- careful. The traps you set for your enemy because you might just fall in that trap. Right? We even have uh, worldly ideas about that, which I don't really believe in. What do we call it? karma right you you, even even world like worldly ideas or people we kind of have that truth of hey be very careful because you reap what you sow and so you see this you see it in the Old Testament remember how Pharaoh he determines in Egypt that he's going to get rid of all the baby boys right and then what ends up happening at Passover he loses his Right? How does he get rid of them? He throws them in the Nile River and they drown. (laughs) Guess what happened to his soldiers? The Red Sea, right? You familiar with the book of Esther? Haman set out a whole plot. Literally built a gallow uh, to handle uh, Mordecai. And what happened? He ended up dying on the gallow he built. So you see this happening. You see this in a symbolic way. We almost see Genesis 315 playing out. What is Genesis 315? I'm telling you what, in my high school, I beat this verse into their heads just last week. I asked them again, what is the first promise in the Bible? It's called the proto evangelium. What is it? Where is it? And uh, I said, I'm going to ask you all this every time. Everything that is written is based on this. I will put hatred between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. You will bruise his heel. He will crush your head. That is the first gospel in the Bible. It's right in the middle of the punishments. And God is looking at the enemy, the serpent of old Satan. And he is saying basically From this moment, there will be two seeds. Okay, honestly, the Bible could be called the tale of two seeds because you're watching it. But at some point, someone born of man, and I showed them that, you know, the seed does not come from woman. The seed comes from man. So one like a human, one that has humanity but is divine and so you have these seeds. You are going to attempt to destroy him. You will bruise his heel. But guess what? In that very attempt, what will happen to you? You will be destroyed. And that is what we're seeing right here. When the enemy sought to destroy the son of man, the son of God, actually that very act is what sealed his fate. Do you understand? Hebrews 2, 14 through 15, look at that. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, and that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong Slavery partook of the same thing that through death he might destroy. When was the enemy destroyed? Talk to me, people. The cross. Okay, the cross. You will bruise his heel, he will crush your head. Says and the king commanded, and those men who had maliciously accused were brought, and they were cast in. Then it goes in in verse twenty-five. It says, "Then King Darius wrote to all the people, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion, people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel." And then you see poetry. Remember what I told you about that? There's going to be great themes. It's like worship, incredible themes. For he is the living God. He will what? Endure forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed. And his dominion shall have be, be, to, be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. And he who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. Darius did more than execute the criminals. He issues a decree to the whole empire, commanding his subjects to show fear and reverence to the God of Daniel, the God of the Hebrew exiles. The first decree put himself in a position of God. The second decree, the God of the Hebrews, was the true and living God. In this, he joined Nebuchadnezzar. But isn't that crazy? Because by all means, if if the God of the Hebrews is the true living God who has been gi- given dominion and has a kingdom that will last forever why are they in babylon isn't that the question I mean don't be afraid to ask the question like we're seeing God Uh, What happens is when the enemy comes after his people and they are true, we see God in these stories, save his people, uh, raise them up and they are exalted. But we're also going to see in the future as we study. Do you remember the words of Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego? Even if he does not, we will not bow down. And we're going to come to a place and we're going to begin to see this in this next chapter when we're hearing about these beasts that there will be days where God does not on the earth save and so, that is a very hard thing to sit in, and it's a very hard thing to understand. But even as a whole right now, you have Darius proclaiming that the God of these exiles is the living God and has dominion, but yet he is sitting over this small group of exiles in the Persian kingdom. And so, but what do we know about the book of Daniel? What we see can be deceiving, because who is actually the king? God. God. And so you see these themes all through. Okay. Now you ready? Cause it's on Daniel chapter seven. Woo. I really prefer to teach Daniel chapters one through six, right? Uh, We're halfway through. So how is this broken up? Daniel is broken up into two sections. Okay. Uh, Chapters one through six are stories about Daniel and his friends. Chapter seven through 12 are the visions of Daniel regarding the future. We have learned so far that this is a story of basically four friends, uh, but predominantly about the one Daniel. They are exiles who've been taken captive. Um, The book is the theme of the book is not about fear. The theme of the book is about endurance and remaining faithful in a hostile environment that is basically against the laws of God. Can we relate to that? We as Christians can relate to this more and more, but I'm going to tell you what, in the United States we can relate, but not like believers that are living in other parts of the world. I mean, honestly, we don't know what it is like that when you are declaring baptism, not only are you taking on symbolically Jesus's death and resurrection, but in many places today, when you publicly profess your faith in Christ Jesus, your imminent death is coming. That is some major persecution. Um, But our world is more and more and becoming more and more hostile against the teachings of Jesus and the people of Jesus. No doubt. More and more. We've seen Daniel respect and serve the worldly kings. Yet when there was a conflict between God and the leaders of the world, he chose God. And we have seen God save in a few big situations. But as a whole, based on what the eye can see, Over Daniel's lifetime, let me ask you a question. Based on Daniel's lifetime, does it really seem like God is king? Are y'all ignoring me today? I wish y'all could see yourselves. You're like this. Based on what you're seeing in these stories in the first six chapters, does it seem, based on what you see, that God is king? No. Uh, we know because Daniel lets us see behind the veil. I appreciate the strength of which you got that wrong. Uh, that's what when I taught at school. I would always say... If you're wrong, am I going to come over there and beat you to a pulp? Like, you know me. Matter of fact, it, it's better to be, like, hard wrong because then when I tell you, you're going to remember. You don't remember anything when you don't make a stand for either, either side. So, come on. Take a risk. Say it. Who cares? Um, based on the eye, I would argue. We know because he has, he has brought the veil back. To show us, but based on what you see in the world of Daniel's time of what is happening, does it truly see, seem like God is king, that God is king over the world, over this empire? No. Right? And it didn't seem like that in Babylon. I mean, in Persia and then the Greeks. I mean, really the wave of what is coming in no way. Does it seem that God is king? Even today, let me ask you something. Does it seem that Jesus is the king of the world? No. If Jesus is really the king of the world, how can we be seeing the things we see? Let me just give you some bullet points. This is depressing. And these are, some of them are just light. Like I didn't even go deep, deep in the dark, you know, web. Did you realize that human trafficking brings in $150 billion a year. I said billion. $100 million of that is purely sex trafficking. You're like, how can that be? In this day and age. 200 and, there are 210 million orphans in this world. More people throughout the globe have an access to a cell phone over a working toilet. Three million children die from malnutrition. 73 million abortions happen a year. 73 million. 17 vets commit suicide every day. Makes me cry. There were 23,000 murders in the United States in 2022. Now you tell me, how can we believe that Jesus is king? How do we maintain hope? Well, that's where we're about to head. Hey, uh, can you play that clip? So I'm going to help you. I think this is the best tool to show you the layout of Daniel. Okay. It's from the Bible project. It's really fast. And I'm going to go off of that. It's going to, and you can actually get online and print this poster. I almost did it for you. And I thought, why am I doing this? Um, you can print the poster and have it in your notes, okay? But watch Tim Mackey walk you through just the poster or the overview of the book of Daniel because we're about to hit the second half and I need you to see some of this stuff. The
1: book of Daniel... The story is set right after Babylon's first attack on Jerusalem and they had plundered the city and its temple and taken a wave of Israelites into exile. Among them were four men from the royal family of David. Daniel, whose later named Belteshazzar, and his three friends who you probably know by their Babylonian names, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. This book tells of their struggles to maintain hope in the land of their conquerors. The book's design seems pretty simple at first. Chapters 1 through 6 contain stories about Daniel and his friends in Babylon, while chapters 7 through 12 contain the visions of Daniel about the future. But this two-part shape is made even more interesting by another design feature, and that's the book's language. It begins in Hebrew, the language of the Israelites, but chapters 2 through 7 are written in Aramaic, a cousin language to Hebrew spoken widely among the ancient empires. But then in chapters 8 through 12 it goes back to Hebrew. This design shows how chapters 2 through 7 are a coherent section, but it also highlights the importance of chapters 2 and 7 for understanding the later chapters of the book. Let's just dive in. Chapter 1 introduces the basic tension of the first half of the book. Daniel and his friends, they are really wise and capable and they are recruited to serve in the royal palace of Babylon. But they are pressured to give up their Jewish identity by living and eating like Babylonians and violating the Jewish food laws found in the Torah. So they refuse and they choose faithfulness to the Torah and it puts them in danger. But God delivers them and they end up being elevated by the king of Babylon. After this begins the Aramaic section, which you will see has this really cool symmetric So, first, the king of Babylon has a dream that, it turns out, only Daniel is able to interpret. It's about a huge statue made of four types of metal, and it symbolizes a sequence of kingdoms, and the head is Babylon. But then a huge rock comes flying in, and it shatters the statue, and it becomes this huge mountain. Now, this dream is the first of many symbolic visions in the book, and this one introduces the basic storyline of them all. Daniel says that the statue represents a train of human kingdoms following from Babylon, and they will all fill God's world with violence. But one day, God's kingdom will come and will confront and humble the arrogant kingdoms of this world and fill the world with the healing justice of God's reign and rule. After this, chapter 3 tells the famous story of Daniel's three friends who refused to bow down and worship a huge idol statue. Which, like the statue in chapter 2, represents the king and his imperial power. And So the friends are persecuted. They are thrown into a fiery furnace. But God delivers them from death and they are exalted by the king who now acknowledges their god as the true one. After this come a pair of stories about two Babylonian kings. The father, Nebuchadnezzar, and then his son, Belshazzar. They are both filled with pride because of their imperial power and so, like in chapter 2, God warns them both through dreams and then visions, which, also like chapter 2, only Daniel can interpret. He says that both kings are to humble themselves before God and both kings arrogantly resist. So Nebuchadnezzar is stricken with madness. He becomes like a beast in the field. But then he humbles himself before God and his humanity returns to him. He's restored as king. This is in contrast with his son, Belshazzar, who doesn't humble himself before God and he's assassinated that very night. Now, these two stories draw this imagery from Genesis chapters 1 and 2 and Psalm 8 where humans are depicted as the royal image of God. He's given them authority to rule over the beasts of the field and the birds of the air on behalf of God who is the world's true king. But when human kingdoms forget that, when they rebel and make themselves and their power into a God, they become less than human, like violent beasts who will face God's justice. Which brings us to chapter six, the pair of chapter three. And this time it's Daniel who's being persecuted because he refuses to pray and worship the king as a god. And so like the friends, he's sentenced to death and he's thrown into a lion's den. But God delivers him from the beasts, and like the friends, the king exalts Daniel and praises his God, which brings us to chapter seven. It's the pair of chapter two and the center of the book where all its themes come together. It's another dream, but it's Daniel's this time. And ironically, he can't understand the dream until in an angelic messenger explains it to him. He sees a series of four beasts, one like a lion, then like a bear, then one like a winged leopard, each of these symbolizing an arrogant kingdom. And last of all is a super beast, identified as a really evil empire. And it has lots of horns, a common symbol for kings in the Old Testament. And there's one specific horn who is an image of an arrogant king who exalts himself above God and persecutes God's people. Now they are symbolized by a figure called the Son of Man who is an image for both God's covenant people but also for their king from the line of David. But then all of a sudden God who is called the Ancient of Days comes and he sets up his throne. He destroys the superbeast and he exalts the Son of Man on the clouds where he comes up to sit at God's right hand and share in God's rule over the nations. We can look back now and see how all of these stories in the first half fit.
0: You can find this online you'll post it okay was that not so helpful okay because although i could sit and show you the links between the chapters it is so awesome to see it like that and um and the theme and so i just think that's helpful you can actually that then becomes a poster you know i mean you can print it out like this they call it a poster and you can print that out so that you can have that in your notes showing you those things okay i just thought that was super helpful so before we start chapter seven i also want to show you like kind of four divisions within this chapter because when you see uh repetitive words sometimes that can be a great division uh, of what's happening so the basically it's phrases of i saw in my vision by night okay So you're going to see that in verse two, when he says, I saw in my vision by night, and then he is going to introduce three of the beasts. Okay. And then in verse seven, he is going to repeat that. I saw in the night visions. And then he is going to describe this fourth super brutal beast and talk about its judgment and destruction. Then in verse 13, you're going to hear this phrase, I saw in the night visions, and then you're going to get the scene of the coming of the son of man and the holy ones receiving the kingdom. And then in verse 15, he's going to say the visions of my head alarmed me, and then he is going to give the explanation of the vision And once again, we're going to see the fourth beast and his judgment and destruction. Okay. So if you're looking at your Bible, I mean, you might could even, um, you know, highlight those verses showing you kind of divisions uh, to take it a chunk at a time. All right. So let's read verses one through eight. I am going to do my best to teach you this stuff. Here is the dilemma. There are books and books and books written about all of the symbolisms within these dreams about prophecy. I am not going to attempt to regurgitate all of that information for you. And I think there are times that we get stuck in all of that symbolism and we get very dogmatic and we hang on to things and we miss in general the message that we're actually coming to Daniel for. So I'm going to do my best. I'm going to throw some things out there. I'm not a theologian. What I'm good at is studying like one and then teaching the everyday person. That's what I'm good at. I'm good at telling a story. So I then need to read everything on Daniel and then write a book called Daniel for Dummies. That's what needs to happen because that's what I was trained to do. Because, yes, because I did all that, studied all that so that I knew what I was talking about because I take my job very serious, but I had to then regurgitate it to juniors and seniors in high school and college and and different things like that, and so I had to make it apply in a way that they could understand it, and I'm realizing that's how the everyday person does, and although I'm a geek and I like all the details, I've realized that when I do that, there are lots of you that come in and go, she lost me today. None of that means anything. My eyes just glazed over. Some of you are nerds and you want it. So I'm going to give you little pieces, but you're you go get it. The information is out there. And if you want to ask me on the side someday, kind of where I land on some stuff, um, I'll avoid it. Okay, here we go. Chapter seven, one through eight. And the beast had four heads and dominion was given to it. After this, I saw in the night vision and behold a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in broken pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it. And it had ten horns. Oh. I'm going to start there. Okay. So he begins and he says that he had an image of a troubled sea stirred up by the winds. Um, much through scripture, when you have this vision of this, um, this stirring up, it is, it is imagery of a time that describes the restless nations of the earth. Let me show you one. Okay. Isaiah 17.12. That the stirring up of this sea. So look at Isaiah 17.12. I want you to get used to this imagery that is being used. Because guess who would have been absolutely versed in this imagery? Daniel. Okay, these images were not necessarily strange to him um, because it's imagery all through the Psalm and uh, the, prof- the prophets. Here's an example. Look at 1712 Isaiah. Ah, the thunder of many peoples. They thunder like the thundering of the sea. Ah, the roar of nations. They roar like the roaring of mighty waters. Okay. So do you see This imagery that is being used. It makes sense because Daniel later we are told that it represents the these beasts represent the empires of the world. You're going to see that in Daniel 717 when he gets the interpretation of the dream. The Holy One is going to say these are kingdoms that come up out of the earth. So when Daniel gives this imagery of the waters being stirred up and beasts coming forth, he is, what he is saying is that there is going to be, there is a stirring and from those water nations are going to rise like roaring waters and they're going to come forth as a parade of beasts. And so this scene, uh, by the way, I want you to see how opposite it is. Think about at the beginning, We also have a sea or waters that are disturbed the abyss and over that, right? The spirit of God, which is also synonymous throughout scripture for what spirit breath, wind is hovering over the deep, but there we see a disturbance, we see chaos, and out of chaos, this wind blows or the breath, and out of chaos comes order and is created a world that is specifically made for humans, created in the image of God. Here, though, what we see is very different. Here you see the winds stirring up. And from that, this stirring comes a parade of these wicked beasts, which we know represent the kingdoms of the world. And what are they doing? They are creating chaos as they go, and they are trampling over human beings of the world. So you, I just want you to see it is very opposite um, in this view, um, I want you to notice that when he describes the beast, so the way I'm going to teach this, I'm going to give you a lot of information, and then I'm going to tie it up as a story. Okay? So just stick with me. Um, he describes these beasts, but do you see uh, the, prep- the preposition before each one? It says, like a lion, like a bear, like a leopard. So he's speaking in What? metaphor. Okay. He's speaking in metaphor and for minds that are steeped in scripture like Daniel's. This is familiar imagery. Okay. This is stock photos. You know what I'm saying? So he's speaking in a metaphor that they would absolutely understand because their minds have been steeped in the psalm and in Isaiah and Jeremiah in the prophets. And so he is familiar with this Um, very often in the psalm and prophets violent oppressive kingdoms will be described in images of wild beasts. I'm just going to show you a few you can look up and I'm going to pay attention mostly to Babylon. Okay, so look at Isaiah 5. Because if you read this today without any thought of the prophets, Lord have mercy, this chapter would scare the bejeebs out of you. Okay, this is describing um, the horrors of the armies of Babylon. Starting in verse 6, I mean 26, sorry. It says he will raise a signal for nations far away and whistle for them. From the ends of the earth. What does that remind you of? The four winds coming from the four directions of the earth. Okay. Um, he'll whistle for them from the ends of the earth and behold, quickly spe- Speedily They come none is weary none stumbles none slumbers or sleeps not a waistband is loose not a sandal strap broken Their arrows are sharp and their bows bent their horses who seem like flint and their wheels like a whirlwind Their roaring is like a what? A lion Like young lions they roar they growl and they seize their prey and they carry it off And none can rescue They will growl over it on that day, like the growling of the sea. And if one looks to the land, behold, darkness and distress, and the light is darkened by its clouds. And can I also tell you that Revelation is written in a lot of this imagery? Okay, so right here we see that the armies of Babylon here are referred to, we see a lot of this image, uh, as the lion. Like a lion. Look at Jeremiah 4, 7. It says, a lion has gone up from his thicket. A destroyer of nations has set out. He has gone out from his place to make your land a waste. Your cities will be ruins without inhabitant. Okay, I'm going to give you some. I'm not going to read them. I'm just going to give you some because we're running out of time. Jeremiah 50, 17 is one of those references. But this time, okay, it's going to refer to Nebuchadnezzar himself. Um, Also, in Jeremiah 48, 40, he is described in the imagery of an eagle. Okay, so it was known in imagery that Babylon was often referred to in imagery of a lion and an eagle. And it also makes sense when you hear uh, the fact that this lion had eagle's wings Right. And the wings were plucked off and then he was stood up like a man and right. So he lost that, that Eagle, that regal, and he was stood up like a man and given the mind of a man. Who does that remind you of? Nebuchadnezzar, when he became a beast and then he was stood up like a human when he finally bowed the knee to God and he was given the mind of a man and not a beast. Okay. Okay. So there, there is a thought there, and you see uh, that connection. Let me just give you some symbolism, and that's how we're, we're going to leave. The next one, what is it described as? Like a, a bear, okay, which is strong, but not as regal. Um, but it's interesting, and this is all from the perspective that this vision aligns with seven aligns with the vision of Nebuchadnezzar in chapter two with that statue. Okay. And so these are kingdoms during the time in history of kind of the kingdoms of the age of of Daniel and on. Okay. So here you have this bear, not as regal, but strong. And it says it was lifted up on one side. So to me, it reminds me of, do you remember who the second kingdom was that came? The Medes and the Persians. But who ended up, which side ended up taking over fully? And we call it the Persian Empire. And so you have this bear lifted up on one side. And then it says that in its mouth are three bones. Okay. Those people think that the Persian Empire had three great conquests. One was the area of Lydia, which is ancient Turkey today. The other would be the city of Babylon and then Egypt. And they, those bones chewed it down to its bones. Those bones are stuck in the teeth of this empire, but they're going to take a ho- whole lot more flesh. Does that make sense? Okay. Then there comes one like a leopard. And when you think of a leopard, you think of swift and you really think swift when you add four wings Onto that leopard. I mean, seriously, like just flying through. And then you have the repetition of what number? Because not only does it have four wings, but it has four heads. So if we follow suit in this line of thinking that these are the kingdoms of that world that are going to progress through, aligning with the image, the statue of Nebuchadnezzar, the next empire would be the Greeks And what is Alexander the Great known for? The swiftness with which he came through. And in such a short, fast period of time, he conquered so much of the empire that had never been conquered. And what's up with the four? Well, he died young. And when he did, instead of giving his kingdom to any uh, bloodline successor, he broke his kingdom up amongst four generals. Okay? Then we're going to see this mega beast. The fourth mega horrifying beast. And the last thing I want you to think of before we stop it we're not going to get to anything that I thought would move you, just so you know. I was worshiping on the way, but I'm ahead of you, so you'll get there, okay? Um, The thing I want you to realize is, did he liken it to anything? In this section, the other things was like a lion, likened to a bear, likened to a leopard. Did he say that this mega horrifying beast was likened to anything? He said it was like nothing he ever saw coming. Nothing he had ever seen. Um, But... What is, um, what is one of the things that kind of sticks out about this fourth beast? Did we read any of it? It's got some horns. Okay? And we're going to look at the symbolism of that. Um, whatever you do, don't even consider missing next Tuesday. Because you need chapter 7. Okay, because did you remember when we went through that poster, how he says chapter two with the vision of Nebuchadnezzar and the image and chapter seven with Daniel is going to be a connector from here on out. And so I'm going to set up a, some symbolism for you. I'm going to teach you kind of two schools of thought on what this image is saying. But more than that. I'm going to do something that I don't hear very many pastors doing at all. And I am going to connect the imagery of the beast and I'm going to apply it to us. Because that, I believe we can absolutely take something away and apply that to our life. And then on top of that, to know at the end of this day, this book of Daniel is meant to be an encouragement to do what? Oh, it's going to get bad. You don't know how long and just when you think it can't get any worse there, it does. There will be a time though, that what the beast will be destroyed and cast into fire and the holy ones of God will receive the kingdom. And how, I mean, in revelation we're going to see the saints say, how long, oh God? Not Forever. And that's what we need to know. Not forever. And although when we look with our eyes, we cannot imagine that Jesus is king by what we see. We need to remember, endure and remain faithful because he is building his kingdom. Why has he not returned? He's building his kingdom. And this should be such um, It should spur us on because if you study Revelations and you study the churches and the church where he says, here's the problem. You've lost your first love. That is taught so poorly, to be honest. He's not saying they've lost their love for Jesus. He commended them already about their faith. I believe he is saying you've lost your first love, which is the gospel. You've stopped doing What you're passionate about, and that is sharing the gospel and growing the kingdom. And in all this persecution and all this nonsense that has happened, you've gone inward together. This is what you've done, and you've gone inward. And you need to remember what your first love is. Your job here is to endure, to remain faithful, and to build the kingdom. Our first love should be evangelism, it should be the gospel. That's what it should be because we're out there growing the kingdom of God. And I'm telling you, you're missing opportunities because they're everywhere. If you're willing to do it, they are everywhere. You can get in a conversation with anyone all the time. It is amazing how God will open those doors. And it's not offensive. The gospel is the greatest story ever told. It is called the good news for a reason. And so we need to go back to our first love And don't miss next week. And if you have someone that doesn't go to church and they're in, this is great stuff. This is like showing up for Lord of the Rings. And I'm about to lay it out for you about what it means. But in the middle of that, I might pull them in with imagery and story and all of that. But what they don't realize is that they're about to hear about the King of Kings the Lord of Lords and what he did to save them. Go out and bring your neighbors to Bible study. This is the greatest way to get them into that narrative and to uh, understand and then possibly guess what? They go home, their lives start to change, you bring them to church, and a whole entire family is transformed because they wanted to come hear a story about prophecy, about the future, that kind of stuff. Bring your neighbors and don't miss. Lord, thank you so much for today. God, I don't know what they're going home with today, but I'm leaving it up to you Um, so much as we go into the second half of Daniel in his visions. God, may we not get so tripped up and dogmatic and hold so tightly to what we have been told that certain images of prophecy of what will happen. Lord, I do not believe the beastly images of Daniel are exhausted in Daniel because we see them arise again in Revelation. But Lord, I think the greatest thing is the idea that I made in your image, in humanity, an image. But when humans do not bow their knee to the Most High, there is a narrow line between human and beast. And so, God, I pray that we would uh, get our face in the book. I pray that we would fall more and more in love with you. And I pray that we would be that we would get back to the business of our first love. And that is sharing the gospel message, because one day, Lord, however long we know that every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that you are Lord. And Lord, I want to bring an enormous amount of people to the kingdom so that we can sit in front of the throne of God and worship Him. Holy is the Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.